The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Have a copy of God's Word with you this morning. Would you join me? Genesis chapters 13 and 14 this morning. Jacob said we started last week walking through this portion of the book of Genesis, looking at the life of Abram, whom God chooses to form a people that he will show his glory to and show his glory through to bring to this world his son, Jesus Christ. Abram is living with his family, a place called Ur. His father, his wife, his nephew Lot. And God's call comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is the, the verses that set us up for uh, really the ongoing narrative of the rest of the Old Testament. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God makes this promise to Abraham a sevenfold promise of blessing, both blessing Abraham personally and through Abraham, blessing the entire world, through the entire world. And so Abram goes, he leaves his home, he leaves his father, his father's house, he takes his wife, he takes his nephew because his brother has passed away. And he begins to travel, um, unsure exactly where he will land, but trusting God to to show him the way. That is one of the promises. I will show you the land, Abram says. So Abram goes, and as Jacob has said, as he gets to to this land, Canaan, um, it's still inhabited by the Canaanites. We'll see that uh, briefly here in Genesis 13 as well. But a famine comes, and so Abram... um, in, a, in, an, in an act of um, distrust, goes to Egypt and hatches a plan to lie and deceive um, that, that Sarah is not his wife, but his sister. And so Pharaoh takes Sarah as his wife and plagues come upon his house in such a way, in such a manner that it's clear that this is because of Abram. And so Abram is, is sent out of Egypt by Pharaoh. He's been blessed with, with many possessions. And so that's where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 13. This morning we'll walk through the narrative of these two chapters together. It's a lot of ground to cover, but... They do, I believe, 
um, work together in such a way that I did not want to, to break them up. So here's how we're going to go this morning, just so you can know what to expect. As we walk through chapter 13, we walk through chapter 14, we will be drawing out some application from the, the text as we work through it. Um, but the, the main thing that I want us this morning to see from the text is the shadows or the foreshadowings of Jesus Christ. I think we see that in these two chapters primarily in three ways, in three things. There's three things in particular that we see in these verses that are foreshadowings of Christ and His ministry. They are that Christ is the peace bringer. Jesus Christ is the peace bringer. That Christ is the conquering redeemer. The conquering redeemer. And that Christ is the blessing bestower. He's the blessing bestower. Look with me, Genesis 13, starting in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name. Of the Lord. Abram leaves Egypt, now a very wealthy man, and he goes back to the place to where he first came as the Lord God led him to that first place where he built an altar and he pitched his tent there between Bethel and Ai, Bethel, house of God. He goes back there, back to where God had sent him to begin with. This is illustration of Abram now trusting God again. There's zero mention. I'm curious. There's zero mention in Genesis 13 as to exactly how long Abram had been in Egypt and how long this process had been. There's no mention that the famine is over. It's not like the famine is done Abram, you're ready to come back. But Abram goes and he, he trusts the Lord. And the Lord is faithful to his promises. And it's, um, even in his unfaithfulness, has, has blessed him. Like, God is full of mercy and loving kindness. And so he goes back there. It just reminded me as a teenager, sort of one of the things my, my youth minister told us was that if you ever struggle with maybe where the Lord is leading you, I think we all struggle with that from time to time, discerning the, the leading of the Lord. If you ever struggle with that, the best thing that I could tell you is go back to the last place you knew for sure He was leading you and wait and listen, pray and seek Him. That's what Abraham does. He goes back to where he had pitched his tent, where he had built the altar, and he 
called upon the name of the Lord there. He worships God. He calls upon God. Verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. So they go back to this place. They pitch their tent there. They begin to dwell there. But this land, this area that they're in, is is not enough to uh, be of enough supply and enough room for this increasing wealth of Abram and Lot. Both have livestock, both have herds, both have tents, both have um, herdsmen. And there's not enough there to, to provide for both of these families in this area. And maybe you're thinking, but this is the promised land. Why would the promised land not be enough? Well, the the next phrase in verse 7 tells us that at the time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. It's not all Abram's land yet. Abram has this area of the land. And in this area, strife begins to occur. Conflict begins to occur between Abram's people and and Lot's people. And so verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We're family. There, there should be no reason for there to be conflict between us. We are family. Is not the whole land before you? I, I, I love this faith of Abram, right? The Canaanites and the Perizzites, they're there But Abram says, God's made a a promise. This whole land is ours. It's not this whole land before you. We don't have to be right on top of each other. So, Lot, separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. What Abraham does in Solving this conflict is a decision. It's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. It's an act of trust in God. Abram believed that God had given him, just as he had promised, all of the land. And so Abram had no need to reserve part of it for himself. Abram had no need to say, God made this promise to me, Lot, not to you, to give me this land, and therefore I'm taking this portion and you go take that portion. That's not what Abram does, though he would have had every right to do it. He's the clan leader. He's the one to whom God had made the promise. But Abram says, Lot, you choose. You can have whatever you want. You take the left, I'll take the right. If you take the right, I'll take the left. And Abram trusts in God and God's provision. And in that, he lives generously. Isn't that true for all of us? 
But the key to living generously, God's word calls us to live generously, isn't one of the keys of living generously, trusting in God that he will provide. And so therefore we live open-handedly knowing that God will supply all of our needs. And so we're free to give wherever we may see fit. Well, Abram is the clan leader. This is sort of a a clan type um, part of history, sort of small little feudal cells of families and clans. Um, You see this in in 14 coming. Uh, You have a a clan here, a clan here, a clan here, a clan here, and and they all are led by essentially petty kings, lower, smaller, clan-leading kings. Abraham is being established in chapter 13 and chapter 14 as a clan leader, and it's his responsibility as clan leader to, to keep peace. And so he uses what God has promised to him, the land, to keep the peace between his family. Verse 10. And so Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered every, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. A little parenthetical citation there is important um, for uh, the way that this um, story will continue, but also seems that in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that the land was changed. This is before the land has been changed, and it is, it is rich, and it is fertile, and it is well watered, and it is like the Garden of Eden. It is like the land of Egypt. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. What we have here in Lot's choice of this land is a very early example of a timeless biblical truth, and that is that we are called to live by faith and not by sight. Lot lived by sight. Lot looked and he saw, that's the language, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. Like It was like the Garden of Eden, like it was like the land of Egypt, the place where they had been, where they shouldn't have, the place where God's people seemed to keep going back to um, for captivity. This land is like that, it's beautiful, it's bountiful. Lot sees it, he's living by his sight, And he wanted it for himself. He chose for himself, giving no regard for anything else. Lot sees and he takes. 
we're reminded that all that glitters isn't gold. And we're not called to live by our sight alone. The reality is, is that if we live by sight alone, without any regard to faith, without any regard to God's leading, if we live by sight alone and choose for ourselves, then we can and will be deceived. That's exactly what happens to Lot. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Lot lived differently. 2 Corinthians 4, 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but that the things that are unseen are eternal. Not to be drawn in by the, the, the lusts of our eyes after the things of this world, living by sight alone with no regard to the things that are unseen and eternal. Hebrews 11, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. A life of faith is a life lived not according to the things that we see, but according to the things that we have not seen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. But you do not see Him now. You believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Our faith by its very nature is a faith in things unseen. We have not seen with our eyes the Lord Jesus, though we love Him. Though we love Him. This contrast between Lot and Abram is real. Abram living by faith. You choose, take what you want. I'm trusting God. Lot, oh, this looks great. I'm choosing for myself. The contrast is real between Lot and Abram, and the contrast continues over and over again between Lot and Abram. For us now, all these years later, Abram, a man, a great man of faith and wisdom, and Lot is a buffoon. There's another contrast we see. And that is that there is zero mention of Lot worshiping God in anything that he does. He sees and he takes for himself. What does Abram do? Abram goes and he worships. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. He built an altar to the Lord. What do we see Abram doing? We see Abram returning to the land, returning to the place to where he had built an altar and calling upon the Lord. And we see now Abram moving. And what does he do? He builds an altar and worships the Lord. Lot, zero 
mention of worship. Zero mention of a concern for God. Abram worshiping the Lord God, and God is faithful to Abram. Abram has made peace. Abram has given up what he didn't have to give up, and God reaffirms with him his promises. Lift up your eyes, Abram. Lot lifted his eyes on his own. Now, Abram, you, as I tell you, you lift up your eyes and you look. Don't just look eastward. Don't just look westward. Look north and south and east and west in every direction. All that you see, I'm going to give to you and to your offspring. I'll make your offspring the dust of the earth as the dust of the earth. If anyone could count the dust of the earth, so also your offspring could be counted. Arise, walk the lengths and the breadth of the land. I will give it to you. Again, God continues these promises that He's making Abram, who has no children. He's making him a promise for offspring. So chapter 13 sets us up for a greater conflict. This lesser conflict in 13 sets us up for a greater conflict in chapter 14. So Lot and Abram have separated. Lot goes down to the area of Sodom. We learn in chapter 14, in the first verses of chapter 14, that there is a war that's taking place in this area. We're not going to read um, the first 10 verses of chapter 14. You can go and read them. We're not going to read them because I can't pronounce the words. Amen. But there's a war there. And you basically have four kings, four petty kings, clan leaders, and there's, there's sort of one main uh, clan leader that's sort of gotten these other groups with them, and his name is Cheddar Lamar. And so there's, there's four kings that have united themselves to come into battle against five kings. And these five kings that are united together, that are being waged a war upon them, include this king of Sodom, this area where Lot is. And as this battle takes place there, the five kings are defeated by the four kings. The king of Sodom is defeated. They, 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 the language is, is unclear. There are some that say that they... They fall in, they get stuck in some tar pits. And then there are others that say, no, they hid there in the tar pits. And there's maybe some reason for the hiding there in the tar pits because king of Sodom pops back up here at the end of 14. Nonetheless, they lose this war. We'll pick up in verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and went their way. Verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. 
There's a progression here in the life of Lot. Oh, this valley looks good. I'll go here. I'll pitch a tent outside of Sodom. Now it says he was in Sodom. And he's captured. He's captured by these kings, and they take him, and they take all his possessions, and they begin to leave. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 318 against five kings. This is, this is not good odds. Abram, with the help of his allies and only 318 people, go to do what four kings and their armies could not do. And they pursued as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them back to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram is the unlikely saving hero of chapter 14. He does with a small group what five kings could not do. This, this, is, this is remarkable. This is unbelievable. I mean, this, this man who was called by God out of Ur and traveled into this land and got scared and went to Egypt is, is now with, with 318 people as a, as a, as a tribal chief, as a, a clan leader chasing down these kings to rescue his family. And what we see is God's promises are proving to be true. That God is with them and that the land will be His. And Abram drives these invading forces out and in the process gets for himself all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. The kings took the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what the the chapter tells us. And then notice here, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and they went their way. Well, Lot chases after them. Verse 16, then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kingsman Lot with his possessions. So there's a distinction here. This isn't just Lot in his possessions. This is all the possessions that they had taken. Abram takes it all. God is being faithful in His promises to Abram. God is being faithful that whoever blesses Abram will be blessed and whoever curses Abram will be cursed. These kings have come against him and his family in the land that's been promised to him. And God deals the victory through Abram and his faith. God is blessing him. 
and those who bless him. God is cursing those who curse him. There's no doubt that God's blessing is on Abram. And Abram goes and he rescues his kinsmen. He rescues Lot and his families and all his possessions. And here in these verses, for the very first time, Abram is called a Hebrew. This is a, a shift. Hebrew is like a, it means um, a, a wanderer, a person with no land, yet it's all his. And now Abram has, has set himself up as a leader in the world, a leader at least in this world. God is working out his promises even in the midst of difficult circumstances. What do we see here? We see that we can trust the promises of God even when our circumstances are difficult, that we can trust God by walking in faith. That's what Abram does. Then at the end of chapter 14, we are introduced to this mysterious figure called Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Salem is what would become Jerusalem. Verse 17. And after his return from the defeat of Omar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him. And he said... Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything that he had. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you would say I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. There's this strange meeting that takes place here between Abram, the king of Sodom, and then this king of Salem, Melchizedek. One thing that becomes clear in these verses is that Melchizedek is the greater of Abram. The, The greater blesses The lesser. And in this meeting, king of Sodom wants to cut some sort of deal, though he has zero to offer. But Abram doesn't take him on his deal. He gives a tenth, a tithe to Melchizedek. Well, we don't know much about this man, Melchizedek. This is it in Genesis about him. There's a mention of him in Psalms. 
But the writer of Hebrews does tell us some things about him. Hebrews chapter 7 is where that's recorded. Verse 4 verses say, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Melchizedek, righteousness, Salem, peace. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Well, I'll be honest with you. The writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, does not do much to take away the mystery around this man, Melchizedek. Sort of just adds to it. There have been throughout history some opinions as to who Melchizedek is. Some say that Melchizedek is Shem, the son of Noah. He would have been alive at this point. One person in particular that held this view was Luther. He was Shem. I, quite frankly, don't think there's any reason for us to believe that he was Shem. Mainly because the Bible doesn't say he was Shem, and I think Moses would have known if he was Shem. Luther thought that. Some say that Melchizedek was an angel. And they, they, they give their reasoning behind that because he just sort of appears out of nowhere and then he disappears into nowhere, much like angels do in the Old Testament. A sudden appearance. That's what the Hebrews 7 says. There's just a, a sudden appearance of him. But there's, there's no reason to believe that he was an angel. Some say that he is Jesus. This would be a Christophany. Um, uh, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, there are things called theophanies. There, there's these visual representations, sightings of God. I'll give you an, an easy example of a theophany if you want to think about that. The burning bush was a theophany. Uh, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, those are theophanies. A Christophany, a Christophany is sort of the appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. So some would say Melchizedek is Jesus in the Old Testament. The reality is we don't know who he is. I don't think that he is any of those things. I think he was a man. I think he was the king of Salem. I think he was a priest. Because that's what the scriptures tell us. The writer of Hebrews says he had no mother or father 
No genealogy. We shouldn't take that to mean that he literally has no mother or no father, that he just appeared out of nowhere. What we should take it to mean is that there is no record of who his mother or father is. If there's one thing that Moses loves to do in the book of Genesis, that is give us an old-fashioned genealogy for everybody. There is no genealogy for Melchizedek. We don't know. It appears as if he has no mother or father. It appears as if he has no beginning or no or no end. He just appears in Genesis 14 and blesses Abram and is called a king and called a priest of the Most High and he disappears. That's his story. He is a priestly king. He is a follower of God. He is a God worshiper. He is a God fearer. I think Joel Beakey says that what Melchizedek does is he, he, he bridges the gap between this old religion of you know, God-fearing where, where, where people were known as, as God-fearers and the Hebrew people what would become Judaism. He's the the bridge between these these two. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of peace. That's his name. And he is used as an illustration of Jesus in the New Testament. He's a mysterious type of Jesus Christ. Not being Jesus, but a mysterious type of Jesus Christ who combines Different offices in one person, priest and king. What do we see in Jesus? We see a prophet, a priest, and a king. We see him offer Abram and God a blessing. And this blessing encourages Abram to reject the offering of the king of Sodom. That's Genesis 13 and Genesis 14. We see Christ foreshadowed in three ways. The first is that Christ is the peace bringer. What do we see Abram doing in chapter 13? He is making peace. He's making peace. This is a foreshadowing of the work that Christ has done and is doing. Jesus Christ is the bringer of peace. He's doing the works of Peace. What does the Scriptures tell us? The Scriptures tell us that He is the Lord of peace. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you always. He is the promised, prophesied Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9.6 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of peace. He is the peace giver. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is the peace bringer. Abraham is trying to keep the peace. Jesus fulfills that by being peace. The peace of God. And in His 
ministry and his work, he brings peace. Where we fall short in trying to make peace, Christ brings peace. Well, how does he do this? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ brought peace. Not by separating a land by separating a veil, by bringing down a wall, a wall of hostility. This wall of of hostility that separated, that caused conflict, did so between two. Jesus broke down the dividing wall first and most importantly between God, the Holy One, most high and sinful man. That there was a a wall of division between us, a veil that, that separated us from God. A wall that we were unable to scale. A wall of sin. And Jesus in His flesh tore down the dividing wall by paying the penalty of our sin so that now instead of there being division between God and man, now there is peace between God and man. That's, that's the first and most important work of peace that Jesus has done. And the second is that He has broken down the dividing wall between men. That there was once a division between us. A division between Jew and Gentile. A division between those who are Abraham's and those who aren't. And what did Jesus do? He tore down the dividing wall so that there is now in Christ Jesus no Gentile or Jew. No slave or free. No male or female. We're all one. The dividing wall of hostility has been taken down so that now we together, because we have peace with God, can have Peace with one another, for He Himself is our peace. He's made us both one. He's broken down in His flesh, in in His sacrifice on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, reconciling us both to God in one body. This is the work of peace. Making us one, reconciling us to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ is the peace bringer. Abraham foreshadows that in trying to make peace. Christ brings peace. Secondly, Christ is the conquering redeemer. 
Lot is taken captive in sinful Sodom. Is there a place that represents sin more greatly than Sodom? Where, where is Lot taken captive? He's taken captive in Sodom. He's taken captive in the place of sin. This is, this is emblematic of us all. And while we don't dwell in Sodom, we dwell in sin. We've all been taken captive by our sin. John chapter 8, 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave to sin. This is, this is the language of, of being bound captive to sin. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verses 18 and 19, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. We are slaves to sin. We have been taken captive by the kingdom of darkness in our sin. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins and once, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the state of every human being, captive by our sin. By very nature, because of our sin, children of wrath. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the conquering Redeemer. Abraham goes out and he fights the battle to win back his kinsmen. This is a foreshadowing of the battle that Jesus fought and won to win back God's chosen people. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. We are cursed by our sin. Yet Christ in His grace becomes the curse so that in His body, through His victorious resurrection from the dead, He could conquer the kingdom of darkness, the power of sin, and redeem us back. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus Christ is the conquering Redeemer. He is the greater Abraham. And just as Abraham distributed the gifts that he had won in his battle, so Christ distributes His gifts to His people. We are His kinsmen, redeemed and blessed by Him, Romans 6. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, 
The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the greater Abraham because he doesn't just make peace, he brings peace. Jesus is the greater Abraham because he is the conquering redeemer. And three, Jesus is the greater Melchizedek because he is the blessing bestower. This Christ-like figure of Melchizedek blesses Abram. And it's a foreshadowing of the greater Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, that when he arises as the promised great high priest, his blessings will be even more. Hebrews 7, 15 through 25. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope was introduced through which we draw near to God. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. He is the greater high priest. And in him, we are eternally blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Jesus is the blessing bestower. He's the greater Abraham. He's the peace maker. He's making peace. He's the greater Abraham. He's the conquering redeemer. He's the greater Melchizedek. He is the eternal blessing bestower. So would we, like Abram, live by faith and not by sight? Trusting in what we do not see. Jesus Christ. who is greater than all. Father, would you help us trust in you? Made visible in your son. 
the greater Abraham, the greater Melchizedek. In your body, Jesus, you were making peace. Tearing down the dividing wall of hostility that stands between sinful man and a holy God by paying the penalty for our sins. Redeeming us, the conquering Redeemer, redeeming us from the kingdom of darkness, dead in our trespasses and sins. Paying the price through your body, the price that we owed but we could not afford to pay. You redeemed us, the conquering Redeemer. You've transferred us by your grace through faith from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. And in Jesus Christ, we are eternally blessed our great high priest, eternal, who always lives to make intercession for us, blessing your people according to your grace for your glory and your great name's sake. May we, like Abram, walk by faith, worshiping as we go. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.